0: Japanese
1: on with an Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Dalwood, and I'm Max Anderson. And this episode, we're talking about... Comedy in role-playing games. There's no place for any of that stuff, Paul. We're serious role-players playing serious games. Speak for yourself, monkey boy.
0: But first, the news.
1: Now, Matt, I understand you had a mysterious package from a far land. Arrive on your doorstep.
2: Funnily enough, I did. Uh, it was rather mysterious as I drove around the corner.
1: I could see it standing in front of my door in the rain. Yay. I know the most expensive role playing game book of all time with a nice leather cover. I'll just sit it on your doorstep.
2: Yeah, tosses. But yeah, they, put it, <laughs> yeah, they left it out in the rain. <laughs> anyway,
1: <laughs> this is the kind of positivity we've come to know from Matt. <laughs> How is the book, Matt? It's actually really Do you good. want to tell us
2: actually what it is? <laughs> yeah, um, It's the Temple edition of Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. The last piece of the Kickstarter to arrive, I believe. It's a rather, rather nice tome. It's two volumes. It's the Keeper's rulebook and the Investigator's handbook. Rather than, as per the normal edition, where or even the leatherette edition, where you have the two books in the one slipcase, these two come in their own slipcases. Each one has the first edition artwork of Cthulhu rising from the ocean on the slipcase and on the book itself. They've got a hub spine. They're probably an easily half as thick again for each book because of the thickness of the paper that's been used. They've got gilt edges and the thickness of the leather bound covers themselves. um, Covered in what was marketed at the time as dark young leather or rather goat leather. As it it really is. But, boy, it feels good. They're a heavy toad. You can easily kill someone whacking that thing um, over someone's head. Most importantly,
0: though, Matt, does it smell of goat? Funny enough, that's one thing I haven't done. I don't generally sniff my books. <laughs> I, when you get goat leather stuff, it does tend to have a peculiar aroma. I, I've got a, a goat leather satchel that I carry around with me, and it did when I first bought it have a very particular aroma to it, which I think is partly due to the goatiness of it and partly due to the fact that the tanning process involves urine. So it basically smelt of goat and piss for about the first couple of months. Matt, just nod.
2: This is the excuse he uses. <laughs> okay smell i was just thinking the closest i ever get to a
1: goat is in a curry so i wouldn't know how it smells other than spices and if you want to see pictures of matt's temple edition of the call of cthulhu then head on over to blasphemoustomes.com where there is a blog post that he has written with lots of images and and if i'm very clever i'll remember to link to it from the show notes and scott i understand you have been interviewed on another show
0: recently Yes, the Lovecraft Tapes, who I mentioned a few episodes ago, they're an actual play podcast. They did a playthrough of a scenario I wrote called Hell in Texas, which was part of the Things We Leave Behind anthology. The Stygian Fox published, oh gosh, must have been the best part of two years ago, They did a fantastic playthrough of it. I mean, they're a a really good actual play podcast. They've really brought it to life, put lots of really eccentric elements in there, some great role-playing, some great comedy. Even though it is a pretty dark scenario, they made it really quite funny, appropriately enough, for this episode. But they decided that they wanted to talk to me a little bit about the, the uh, scenario afterwards. And so, yes, I just recorded a, a short half-hour interview with them where I talk a bit about where this scenario came from and lots of other stuff to do with Cthulhu. And now, the Lovecraftian Words of the Week.
2: This week our word is... Titter. It's an intransitive verb. To laugh in a restrained, nervous way.
1: Giggle. Also as a noun, a nervous giggle. I think it's less often the nervous giggle and more often a kind of a menacing cackle that Lovecraft is getting at, isn't he?
0: Well, I don't know about menacing cackle, but it's that... That sort of feeling of wrongness. There's something about the idea of a titter that's a sort of mocking, maybe slightly childlike, maybe slightly lascivious. All of these things are on the creepy end of funny. And we find Shantax doing it. Yeah, that really blows my mind. The fact that you have these monstrous kind of elephant-sized bird-reptile creatures that flap through the sky and instead of screeching or squawking or growling or anything like that they titter that's
1: just and on the lovecraftometer we get a score of 25 as tittering tittered titteringly titter or titters giggity and now let's have a look at how lovecraft uses the word titter in his writings from the horror
0: at red hook Somewhere, dark, sticky water was lapping at Onyx Piers. And once the shivery tinkle of raucous little bells peeled out to greet the insane titter of a naked phosphorescent thing, which swam into sight, scrambled ashore, and climbed up to squat leeringly on a carved golden pedestal
2: in the background. And from the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath... Onward, onward, dizzily onward to ultimate doom through the blackness where sightless feelers poured and slimy snouts jostled and nameless things tittered
1: and tittered and tittered. And from The Dreams in the Witch House. The Beldam's face was alight with inhuman exaltation, and the little yellow-toothed morbidity tittered mockingly as it pointed at the heavily sleeping form of Elwood on the other couch across the room. And can we take a moment just to appreciate
0: the use of morbidity as a noun there? I I just love that phrase, the little yellow-toothed morbidity. Uh, That would make a great pet name for someone.
2: And on to today's main topic, comedy in RPGs.
1: This is an unusual topic for us, I think. A very general topic. We do spend a lot of time at gaming tables laughing, but we play what might be considered serious games. But are they serious? So in this show, we're going to consider what's the role of humour in games? What makes games funny? And how, and indeed, should we stop a game being funny?
0: Well, one thing we've talked about an awful lot on this show before is the fact that comedy and horror are kissing cousins. The tension that you build up in a horror game is very much the same kind of tension that you build up sometimes in comedy, that it's something that needs a release. And that release can be horror or it can be laughter. Certainly very often, uh, when you push horror too far, the reaction that you'll get out of people is laughter.
1: And I think we find that, if you go to a cinema and watch a horror film, I went on Monday night, I went to a showing of Scream Unseen, which is an unknown horror film. You go along and it's it's half price, but you don't know what you're going to get, but you do know it's going to be a horror film. And it was packed. I guess the audience were all horror fans. You know, they'd turned up to a mystery horror film, right? And there was some laughter at, particularly horrifying parts of the film, but I think that's part of the appeal. I think you do find mm. some of the what you might call kind of over the top horror parts funny. It's all
0: sorts of reasons. I mean, sometimes, yes, it is because it is that thing of I'm not going to scream, therefore, you know, I'm going to laugh. Sometimes it's because the thing is so poorly executed or falls so far short of what would be genuinely horrific for you that it actually does become funny. And I think this is something that probably happens quite a lot in games, and we'll probably dig into that over and over again as, as we continue this
1: discussion. But there's a kind of reaction, isn't there, that when you get the eye up against the keyhole... And, you know, there's somebody on the other side with a screwdriver. You're kind of horrified, but as a horror fan, you're laughing because you've seen it before and it's both horrifying and funny. That's a kind of a weird, like sweet and salty mixture. But I think it
0: is, you know, as I was saying that, that expectation that you get with humour as well. That if you see, whether it's slapstick or a long shaggy dog story or you know some long scene that's got a build-up in a comedy film, you can sort of see that things are building up towards some twist revelation, things going horribly wrong. When that happens, your reaction is going to be this explosive release of laughter. I think it's the same thing in horror, that you do have that build-up of tension. It's just a different kind of tension and it's a different kind of release. But uh, yeah, as I said, in love cases, it's actually even the same kind of release that I'm actually reminded a little bit back in my days of, of doing ritual magic. I went along to a few meetings of an occult group called the Illuminates of Thanateros, the IoT. They were the original chaos magicians. There was this big part in their practices which was called banishing by laughter. And the idea was whenever you did a magical ritual, you sort of built up all these, I say psychic energies, but these sort of psychological forces within yourself, that the release at the end of it was this very deliberate getting together as a group and laughing to dissipate and, and release all this tension that you
1: built up. Okay, it kind of reminds me of that, you know, laughter therapy idea, mm. you know, which is where groups get together and purposefully make themselves laugh. Well, they don't make themselves laugh, they, you know individually laugh in a contrived manner but then people start
0: laughing naturally and i think all of this is a big part of why we spend so much time in games of call of cthulhu laughing
1: it also seems like it's very much a social bonding thing I mean, if we weren't playing a game and we were just meeting a few friends at a cafe or a pub or something unless it was a very somber occasion people are going to start making each other laugh and when you make somebody laugh Generally, I think we like making people laugh and we seek to do that again and we seek to reflect that behavior, you know, amongst each other. I mean, when somebody in a game says something that that makes you chuckle, I would say I feel okay with doing something down the line that makes them chuckle,
0: right? It's also an immediate form of social connection if you're playing with a group of strangers either online or at a convention. That first time the whole table erupts in laughter or that you, know, you have an exchange whereby a couple of people start laughing over a shared experience or you know, something witty that someone said, then that, I think, does an awful lot to create that basic human connection that is at the core of all social experience.
1: We all obviously know each other and play in each other's games. And when you go from your isolated pool of games to somebody else's pool that you haven't been in before, sometimes they have quite a different approach to gaming. And some Mm. people take it pretty seriously. Some people take it comedically all the time. And some people are, you know, a halfway house. So there's a big sliding scale here. It does
0: always surprise me sometimes how seriously people will take gaming. This doesn't directly relate to comedy, but I remember seeing a post online, oh gosh, must have been about ten years ago, someone was talking about their experience of having a new player in their group. And they were a group of D&D players who'd been playing together for some time, and they developed this particular dynamic between them. And I think some of them may have been ex-military. And they certainly treated... Dungeon crawls, almost like military expeditions, they took it very seriously, they all had their roles, they all backed each other up, they knew the optimal way to tackle problems, and they dealt with them sort of cleanly, efficiently, in a way to ensure the survival and optimal well-being of everyone involved. And they had this new player join who didn't take the group quite as seriously. And they were doing things in the game because they thought they were funny. So their character was doing suboptimal things and it's sort of, oh, yeah, I might wind the goblin up instead of just sneaking up and stabbing him in the back. And, you yeah, know, I might accidentally tr- set this trap off because it'll be funny. And the other players were so angry with him. And it's sort of, you know, our character survivals are on the line here. We have spent ages training for this and and learning these ways of doing it. How
1: dare you come in and disrupt our way of doing this? Yeah, I think that comes down to an approach to the game, doesn't it? If you're playing it in a very cold, tactical way, as we might see with a board game, such as maybe Risk or Civilization, something where it's tries to emulate a real world situation and it's very tactical then you get very into the mindset of trying to win and trying to make optimal moves you don't want somebody arsing around making you know screwing it up most of us play role-playing games i think there's a lot more interplay of sort of inter-character chatting and making jokes and things like that
0: Well, I think for a lot of groups, that's probably one of the main attractions. Things like running jokes and running gags are are, are such a big part of most people's gaming experiences. I mean, I'm sure we've all had this experience where over the course of a campaign, there are certain motifs or certain phrases or whatever that people will just keep coming back to and referring to because, again, there's that shared experience. They came up once, they were funny, and we're now looking at ways of reinventing them or riffing on them. And and they, they take on a life of their own. We've seen this on the podcast
1: with a few things. For example, attract fish. Yeah, which eventually I'd say, OK, guys, I think we've done that one. <laughs> I'm surprised Paul's smiling, actually. That's <laughs> Enough time has passed. The scars have healed, Matt. Uh, no, it's just the nervous
2: terror. <laughs> <laughs> When you said that running gags tend to be a feature in a lot of the games you play, I'm having a real difficulty trying to think of ones the way it's been in games that I've run or played in. The only one I can think of is when we played your Mooks game, the Primetime Adventures campaign, mainly after Drunk Angry Aquaman became a thing, winding him up by saying that all dolphins were fish, and of course getting you
1: to promptly scream so every other game in the building heard you cry that they were mammals. And hold on, Matt, I don't want to go into any anecdotes here... But did you not have a character called Willoughby Staines in one of Scott's games? Ah. I was actually trying to riff off a gag from Count Duck
2: It just then morphed into something distinctly more filthy. But (laughs) the
0: running gag in that was every time he encountered a creature from the mythos, his first reaction was, I'm going to fuck that. (laughs) So that really was a running gag. Uh, that was a long time ago, admittedly. But yeah, and, and in something you've run recently, that cult game that you ran at the club, there was that running gag that developed of just how much we'd fuck up every coffee shop that we went into. We just opened gateways to uh, hidden worlds you know, oh, in
2: the that, bathrooms and stuff. That was like you. That. <laughs> right? but,
0: but, but, but no, this is an example of how running gags come up spontaneously during games.
2: Yeah, you just hated Starbucks. But, okay. Yeah, yeah,
0: but it just became this thing that yeah, you know, anytime there was a reference to a coffee shop, we'd do something horrible to it and connect it to metropolis or something like that and and starbucks would end up getting fucked
1: yeah just i don't know these these seem to bury their way into my memory that i just forget you as a player matt in my game of tatters of the king you were a player character but you ended up playing the role of cultist summoning dark young now that in itself isn't funny but it was kind of funny right the way it's kind of played out especially when you told us actually you did what the bad guy in the bloody scenario is written to do yeah you weren't doing it to be funny But I think around the table, people were smiling and it was... It seemed the optimal thing to do.
2: you put the loaded gun in my lap.
1: (laughs) I guess we should draw a distinction here between aiming to be slapstick and funny and making people laugh and just doing things that you think are what you should do, as you did, and it just being amusing. But haven't
0: you ever done anything in a game just because you thought, ooh, this will be fun?
2: Uh... If I have, I can't remember it. Oh,
0: wow. OK. That, that, that is usually the first thing at the, the front of my mind during most games I play. is just, what beautiful chaos can I cause by doing this thing? <laughs> but are you out. aiming to be funny, Scott? No, I do it for a variety of reasons. During a horror game, sometimes I want to do it to escalate the horror. Sometimes I'll do it because I think that we could do with ratcheting up the action or the tension. So I'll do something deliberately suboptimal, like winding up the wrong NPC, just because I think having them angry at us will create an interesting dynamic in the game. And sometimes, yes, I will just do it because I think it's going to make people laugh.
1: Right. My point would be... I think a lot of things that happen in games aren't intended as humour. I just think they're funny sometimes, you know. As an example, I was in a game recently with friend Kiri, and they were all in a a little house, and they were a family, and weird things are happening in there, and the vicar comes to call. And as the vicar comes in, Kiri goes to the door and invites the vicar in, and they're all having a cup of tea. And Kiri just looks at me and says... I just go up to the door and slide the bolt across and lock the door. <laughs> and that just loads so many images into yeah. my head now that, okay, I don't think this vicar's is going to get out alive.
0: You can just picture that as a scene in a horror film.
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's quite an innocent act, but, you know, why is he doing that?
0: That's exactly an example of the kind of thing I was talking about before, where you had that kind of slow build of tension, that you're describing that act, is this going to end in something funny, is it going to end in something horrible, I don't know, but you've got the same sort of build-up of emotion within you, and at some point it's going to get a release. Sometimes as well, you'll just have spontaneous things that come up in a game that's nothing even to do with what anyone's saying. But uh, the, the classic for me is the results of certain dice rolls. You, Matt, I mean, you fuck up dice rolls at you know the most inopportune moments, and it's a curse. But these can be great fodder for comedy: the right, or more usually, the wrong dice roll at the right moment can lead to horror can lead to catastrophe but the number of times i've seen in a call of cthulhu game at a tense moment someone rolling dice rolling double zero at the table and everyone's reaction around them is just nervous laughter
1: oh 100 percent, yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean remember the time we were playing Orange express and it's like oh paul do you want to move that coffin it... <laughs> okay i'll move the coffin i'll lift it down is it... can i do that yeah as long as you don't fumble OK, I'm never getting out of here alive. And the other
0: spontaneous thing that happens every now and then, it, it doesn't happen that often, is what's referred to, I think, in acting as corpsing, which is just that moment of inappropriate laughter. I mean, whether it's triggered by nothing or perhaps something, someone has said something quite serious that has sparked the wrong reaction in your head. And you just had that uncontrollable laughing. And I remember... There was a game of Millennium's End that was being run by my friend Chris many years back. We were playing the members of this modern-day detective agency and we were getting a briefing from the client. He basically said at some stage, well, our client wants you to sort this out immediately. His daughter's been kidnapped. And I don't know what it was. There was just something about the way he said the phrase his daughter's been kidnapped. I started laughing. I don't know why. There was nothing funny about it. And it was one of those, you know, self sustaining things where Trudy started laughing as well, she looked at me I looked at her and the two of us were in helpless laughter for literally about two minutes and every time Chris tried to start this briefing up again as soon as he got to any mention of the word kidnapped, that was it we were lost, we'd just fall apart and there was no fucking good reason for this whatsoever it almost destroyed the game but oh god, it, it was one of the most memorable experiences I've had at the gaming table What is it that makes a game funny? I think it's a really difficult thing to set out to make a game funny. As soon as you decide, you know, I'm going to run a comedy game, you're setting expectations that you may not be able to meet. I mean, there are all sorts of ways you can help this, but you've got to resign yourself to the fact, first of all, that it might not work. I think, personally, I mean, one of the things that you can do that's going to serve you best is to start out with a funny premise. For example, you mentioned earlier that game that I ran at the club, Mooks. Mm -hmm. I had this idea kicking around in my head that it would be fun to do a primetime adventures game where the characters were all members of this recruitment agency for the sort of faceless minions of uh, supervillains and mad scientists and so on and Bond-type villains. They were all freelancers coming into the MOOC's recruitment agency, and it was as much about the bureaucracy and the operations of the recruitment agency as it was about the weird things they got up to in the field. Of course, it ended up being something very different once the players got hold of it
1: and created their characters. But I thought that would be a funny premise. I think when it comes to Call of Cthulhu, I think what makes the game funny is often, as you said earlier, Scott, botched rolls, fumbles and and, and criticals, probably more the uh, the fumbles right that that make things funny the other thing that i think gives people license to be funny is in the the delusions and the results of playing up insanities because it, it gives them license to act in whatever manner they wish sometimes quite inappropriate ways this isn't automatically funny by any means It helps that in Call of Cthulhu,
0: insanity is something that is very divorced from real-world psychiatric problems. But there is still sometimes unfortunate undercurrent of, you know, let's laugh at the funny mad person. Well,
1: I don't think we're laughing at people with mental health problems. I think we're laughing at the absurdity of some of the situations this brings up. As far as topics for humour go... I mean, we're all quite happy to make jokes about Nazis, Hitler, serial killers. Yeah. These are all pretty serious things, right? If taken in the right way, then, you know, there's, there's humour to be found in all sorts of things.
0: Well, this is something I think we'll get to in the next segment. But, you know, humour is always subjective. And there are certain things that are going to work for some groups that really aren't going to work for others. That you know, there, there are topics which some groups will be very, very happy to joke and laugh about. And others will be absolutely mortified if they come up at the table. As a GM, if we want to have a funny game, I talked a moment ago about having a funny premise, but how do we encourage that game to be a funny thing?
1: I think if you want to play up the humour, then you allow for it and you don't suppress it. Conversely, I think perhaps the way to do this is to turn it on its head, I ran a con game a long time ago now, I think back at Battlemasters, and I was running a Call of Cthulhu scenario with a bunch of players I didn't know, and one of their first investigations took them to a newspaper office, and their interaction with the uh, secretary, I think, I made some comic aside, and the player looked at me, very stony-faced, and said, oh, I don't think that's appropriate.
0: <laughs> Did everyone laugh, Everyone else laugh at this No, stage? No, no,
1: no, no, it was quite deadpan. Oh, wow. And... I was like, oh, uh, actually, they don't want to play a funny game. And I didn't really want to yeah. play a funny game. I wasn't aiming to make the game funny. It was just a you know, moment of light relief. But yeah, it felt really flat. And actually, that felt like kept the ass to say, actually, the players want to play quite a gritty, serious game here. So you know, I turned that off and played it more seriously. I think a lot of this does fall to the GM. If the GM responds positively to humor people are going to start throwing it out and equally you know it was the player that that did it but you know i took that as a flag i think
0: that comedy games work better if the gm plays the role of the straight man i remember you know this is something that, that struck me when i first encountered paranoia i was reading through the original box set of paranoia and i think it was either one of the scenarios that came with the box set or one of the very early supplements and there was this intro to it where, you know, the GM was encouraged basically to be as wacky as possible in the intro, putting on lots of funny voices, singing little songs, you know, getting up and acting stuff. And I was reading through all this thinking, all right, maybe I'm just being very British about this, but if I was sitting in a game and, and the GM started doing all that, I'd find that more abrasive than than funny and as the gm i don't want to feel like it's my role to perform for the players
1: yeah i mean the computer in paranoia isn't telling jokes but it is funny but it's kind of like you say it's the straight man yeah do you have appropriate security clearance for this joke citizen exactly there's a selection of games out there that have been designed for humor and paranoia would seem like the archetypal game for that. But there's a, a list of others that we could mention, such as Toon, Kobolds Ate My Baby. I mean, Kobolds Ate My Baby? Are you expecting a serious game here? <laughs> Inspectors, Discworld, Baron Munchausen, and one I recently played, No Country for Old Kobolds, which just the title caught my imagination.
2: <laughs> I, I do remember playing Kobolds Ate My Baby uh, recently after the most recent edition came out at Gen Con. And the, the GM, again, lovely deadpan manner for pretty much everything he presented. Um, we had a kid at the table, could have been no more than seven or eight, said, well, my cobble walks up to this window and has a look inside. GM leans over and says, just checking, how old are you, kid? And uh, so she <laughs> says, yeah, perhaps seven. So today just says, uh, censored, move on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, With comedy games like this, games that are explicitly written to be funny have you had much experience of trying to run explicitly comedy games and if so how easy have you found them to run
1: i don't think i've set out to run a comedy game i mean there have been games that i've run that have been funny for the players at least no country for old kobolds seems like an actually really fun game does attract me but playing a game like inspectors i've played it a few times i just found it pretty tiresome okay um i think everybody purposefully trying to be funny i just find really wearing worse than any of that is then hearing about people's games of inspectors and how funny they were and i'm like i'm so glad i wasn't in that game but it's also a very subjective thing isn't it so there's lots of comedy shows on tv that i love there's lots of comedy shows on tv that leave me totally flat so the people at that table if they're into that kind of comedy that i don't like i'm probably not gonna fit in with it If you get a a group that meld really well and share a sense of humour, fair play to them. They'll have a a great time. But if you end up sat with them and you're not into that style of humour, it is like torture.
0: I've had mostly good experiences on this front. I did run Toon a number of times in the 80s. I've run Paranoia. I've run a fair bit of Inspectors. And my experiences have, have been pretty positive on the whole. It depends what you want out of the game. If you're looking for coherence, then generally you're not necessarily going to get a lot of that in the games like Toon and Inspectors, where they're players doing wacky things. But if you've got the right group of people there and everyone is just feeding off the energy of everyone else at the table, you've got that infectious laughter going on, then it doesn't translate into something you'll ever explain to anyone afterwards.
1: But the experience of playing it for that couple of hours I find exhilarating. I mean, you've raised an interesting topic here, Scott, i was thinking when we were talking about doing this show i was thinking yeah i have some funny things happen in my games i wasn't really considering the games that are intended to be funny such as inspectors which a lot of people i'm guessing might not know but you know it's, it's a game that's intended to be funny it is, it's basically ghostbusters apparently <laughs> it's never been my experience but um i mean what would you say matt I I never
2: set out to run comedic games, but ones that I think could maybe go on the list of being games that are set up for comedy, but not necessarily, it's their primary focus. Things like Over the Edge and Heaven and Earth. Mm. Uh, They're games that have a good degree of surrealism, wackiness, but not inherently in-your-face funny. It's how the players react to it that is is how they are going to inject any comedy into it, because I won't.
1: Because, I mean, if you take the inspiration for Heaven and Earth, Twin Peaks, right, mm-hmm. there's lots of humour in Twin Peaks. It's not a comedy, but there is a lot of humour in it. And that's kind of how I take most role-playing games, that they're not out-and-out comedies, but there will be moments that are funny that happen in them. And sometimes the more serious the game, the, the funnier the moment is when it's funny. Hmm. I think a baboon in f- wearing a fez carrying a machine gun is really funny.
2: <laughs> <laughs> also a terrifying adversary in Over the Edge. <laughs>
0: But, no, I mean, that that's an interesting point. I mean, you talk about not putting comedy in your games, but, uh, you know, as soon as you introduce an element like that, yes, you, you are. I mean, what kind of reaction are you expecting from
2: the players when you bring an element like that in? I'll set things up and I'll let them fall however the players want them. I won't deliberately think, oh, this is funny, I should put this in. I like surrealism, I like absurdity. Um, but, again, you could take that from a player angle as being, oh, shit, it's a wild
1: animal with a gun. It's going to kill me. There's going to be bullets flying everywhere. Yeah, I guess you and, could take that, a baboon with a machine gun, seriously, but it would take some kind of mind to do that, wouldn't it? I mean, you perhaps are, internally, you are playing a straight man, map because you're not seeing that you're running funny things, because yeah, you're sort of presenting them straight. Yeah, that, that is
2: how I'll present it. I'll present it as that kind of generic down-the-middle not deliberately trying to be comedic
0: But the fact that you are putting those elements in is inherently comedic That's the point I'm making When I was talking about setting up a strange premise and playing the straight man that is exactly what I was talking about As soon as you do that you're putting the elements in place for a comedic game
2: I'll admit I'll do that in certain games then I mean like Over the Edge and Heaven and Earth But it really depends on the game itself Cthulhu probably less so It's more of a straight down the line horror game as far as my interpretation of running it would be um, I wouldn't really do a comedy um, not e- not,
0: game. Not even with Pulp? Um, no,
2: that's more high-action adventure, really, uh, really, for me. Although, that said, we did have a relatively weird outbreak of comedy when I've been running Beyond the Mountains of Madness as a Pulp game recently. Yeah, that that got a little bit weird.
0: Well, what, what, what was it that happened that was funny, and, and how, did it, how did it fall into place?
2: Oh, boy. Um... The PCs, or heroes rather, in this instance, have been doing a lot of reading. I mean, a lot of reading. Um, spending a lot of time in the rare book section of the, or the restricted section of the Miskatonic University Library, devouring mythos tomes, gaining shitloads of spells. And one of them got hold of the Call Forth the Horned Man spell. Yeah. Uh, if you read the description of the spell in the Grimoire, it has. Um, a chance basically the green man turns up and whoever has called him uh, gets a 5% power boost after having a dance with them and dances in inverted commas yeah that, that dance ended up turning into a quite raucous session in bed uh, while the other people that had been used to summon the Horn man had got themselves all lathered up in oil and so uh, on performing. Did they but, somehow
1: misread horned as horny?
2: I, he did turn up pretty pleased to see them. I was right. Okay, yeah. I think we know where you're going yeah. with this.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, is that you or your players doing that? Oh, there's six of one, half a dozen, the other, yeah. in that case. Yeah, okay, they, yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. That,
0: that's yeah, what I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. that you're creating the space in which people can be funny. Mm-hmm.
2: But that also could have gone quite horrifically as I, well. It's well, very much and, how and, the players uh, wanted to take it. That's the direction I was quite happy to let them go in.
0: And the two blend into each other beautifully.
2: Especially when they start doing oiled uh, wrestling matches in the next room.
1: Finally, let's take a look at how, and indeed should, we stop a game being funny. Well, first of all,
0: when wouldn't you want a game to be funny? We've talked an awful lot about the social aspects of laughter at the table. Obviously, it's a thing that, you know, people really enjoy. So why would you
1: ever want to stop that happening? I think because you want a more serious tone to the game, essentially. If, if you and your players want a more serious tone to the game and you allow humour to come in and keep coming in, that's going to undermine that tone. How do you know if you want a serious tone to the game? You might have decided you want that, but unless everybody else has agreed, then who knows? So really, it's one of those old cliches of talk to your group, I think, and say at the outset, we want to go for quite a serious tone here. Building on that, it almost comes
2: back to lines and veils discussions about what topics you want to come up in-game. Because I'm suddenly thinking that there was one session of a game that we played that effectively turned into Kill the Baby, Um, this baby who was immortal and somewhat demonic. It ended up being almost like a carry-on feature of chasing around this baby, trying to hit it with a frying pan, trying to shoot it with a a bow and arrow, trying to stab it, trying to dismember it, throw it in a fire.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you describe it, it's a horrific subject. I mean, it's the most gritty, disturbing, horrifying subject. But at the same time done in the right way. It could be the funniest subject. No, they were were laughing around the table as they were trying to kill this bloody baby. It's like, whatever we try is failing. Ah!" (laughs) So I think, you know, it is, as we've previously discussed, the kind of lines and veils, what do you want in your game and what topics don't you want in your game? But equally, perhaps a discussion about tone as well.
0: Well, and also, I think, being prepared to deal with inappropriate jokes and so on when they come up. And this is a really difficult thing to identify. But sometimes, you know, someone will say something at the table that they think is funny but may end up being horribly racist or sexist or homophobic.
1: I think compounded by the fact that they might be saying it in character. Yeah. Allowing them to make a bad-taste joke but getting them off the hook...
0: Well, and there's already that degree of remove in that, you know, there are a lot of people who genuinely believe that nothing is off-topic for humour, that if you can say something and you get a reaction and it's laughter off someone, then that reaction justifies whatever it was that you just said.
1: But I'll go back to the point that why is a game any different to meeting a bunch of friends at a cafe or a pub Mm. if somebody made, I don't know, a, a sexist, racist, whatever joke at the table and somebody laughs, do you let it pass or do you confront it?
0: I think it gets further compounded because there's a thing that happens in group dynamics a lot anyway, which is that that fine line between humour and having a bit of fun at someone's expense and verbal bullying... I mean, I've seen this happen a few times at the gaming table where perhaps you get one person who isn't role playing as confidently as everyone else. Or maybe it's even just that the dice have been going against them and their character's been a bit crap or whatever. And you get this degree of mockery sometimes coming from players that has got the veneer of good humour and, and you know, is veiled in jokes, but actually can end up being quite upsetting for the person who's on the receiving end of it. And, I mean, this is something we've talked about a little bit in other contexts, but the social role of the GM at the table, the fact that you are sometimes expected to be almost the social referee or arbiter, that if there is something going on like that and, and someone is, is getting upset or picked on or the humour is inappropriate, is it almost the role of the GM to be the ones to sit there and say, can you cut that out? or I don't think that's right. I mean, a lot of people seem to think that, but
1: personally, I, I
0: think it's the role of absolutely everyone at the table to
1: do that it's definitely the role of everyone but it's a lot easier for the gm because nominally and traditionally they're seen as being in charge of the game so they're like the teacher in front of the class almost they're in a role of authority i mean that's kind of overstating it but i think in the group dynamic they kind of are
0: but on the other hand you know if someone has made a joke that's upset you and the gm doesn't seem to be picking up on it maybe the gm you know didn't hear it or maybe they didn't you know see the aspect of it that's upset you
1: so don't expect them to know that you're upset unless you say something there was a lamentations game that we were in again at the club and it was a you know a kind of spooky house and upstairs there was a character and i think the way it was written in the scenario was the character was male but dressing as female yeah he basically
0: was living in the bed of a noblewoman who had previously been the owner of the house and had taken to dressing in her clothes i don't think it was ever explained whether it was because he was a cross-dresser or whether it was because they were the only clean clothes around but i think when you first encounter him he's wearing a silk gown or
1: something but it became the butt of some jokes from people in the group it kind of did cross the line but it was kind of got its foot on the line with what some people were saying and it was kind of uncomfortable yeah i I, I, I found it
0: very uncomfortable it was
1: uncomfortable yeah but it's one of those things that if it gone a little further i think we'd have confronted it but the moment passes and do you say something do you not say something yeah and then you're left just kind of feeling awkward and it would feel confrontational to say something when did the person really mean to be offensive? It's yeah, a hard, it's a hard one.
0: Yeah, I don't think there was any offensive attention there, but. If I remember correctly, one of the players at the table was transgender. At that stage, I was thinking, is she going to be upset about this? Would I be patronising if I said you know, yeah. said something at this stage? Um, or is she being very quiet because she doesn't want to cause offence, but this is upsetting
1: her? And yeah, at that stage,
0: I, I just didn't know what the
1: fuck to that do. That was really difficult because I think... It's not that we would let... I hope that we would let that pass if there wasn't a transgender person at the table. It's not like we're going to t- tell racist jokes if there aren't black people around. Yeah. But it was... The fact that there was a transgender person there... It, it was, I don't know, it was just like compounding it in my head. Do I say something now? Do I say something now? Are they okay with this? I mean, I guess the answer is we should have said something at the time. Yeah,
0: I i, I think so. It was one of these situations where it was easier to see the right thing to do in
1: retrospect than it yeah. was in the heat of the moment. And I think I'm really bigging it up because it was quite a passing thing. It yeah. was quite I, a quick It, it thing, was like but... 30
0: seconds of the game yeah. and, and it wasn't played in a grotesque or mocking way. It was almost matter of fact. But it was just, you know, the tone of the way it was written in the scenario was was just a bit off
1: if we extrapolate from that and you're in a game probably with people you don't know and somebody makes a totally inappropriate or offensive joke what do you do On a perhaps more benign
0: note, but, you know, vexing in its own way, another thing that you get sometimes is a real mismatch of expectations. You talked before, Matt, about when you're running Call of Cthulhu, you'll generally want to run it as a serious game. Mm -hmm. I was speaking online to uh, William Adcock, who we met at Necronomicon. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he uh, ran The Space Between, which is a scenario I wrote for Nameless Horrors, at a local gaming get-together. I'm not going to say the Space Between is a serious game, it's not. There's a lot of absurdity, and there's a scope to make it a very dark comedy. He went in to run it fairly straight, and he had a group of players who basically did not want to engage with the premise at all, that they just basically wanted to go around and be wacky and, and say inappropriate things to NPCs and set fire to everything they saw. And
2: Was it uh, the same group that also said, where's my Tommy gun? Yes, ah, yeah, right. that, that yeah, was it.
0: Yeah. yeah, they sort of said, this can't be Call of Cthulhu, none of us have got Tommy guns or dynamite. He said that the game didn't go very well, and at the end of it, you know, he was talking to them about it, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, our, our normal style at home, we summon up the king in yellow, call him fat, punch him in the face, and then run away. He's not fat. Well, you, you tell him that. I, I, I think it's just the robes. They're very unflattering.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah Yellow's, you know, not, yeah. not
0: not slimming. Yeah. Maybe if he wore vertical stripes with it. Mm. But that was very much a case of the wrong players playing the wrong game.
1: But if I were running that, I think one of the things I'd try and do is see where the group's at and this is something i learned from another gm at a con years ago and he said that when he's running a game if people are playing in that mode then he goes with it and i witnessed him do that but if they hadn't have done that then he'd have played it in a more serious tone so you kind of play to your audience i guess yeah
0: and that's very much what I do as well. There are some games, definitely, where I've wanted to play them seriously. And I've ended up doing them as as because that's what the players wanted. I've, I've personally found it quite unsatisfying. But if that's what they wanted to play, then I'm not going to be able to stop them.
1: Dark horror, Scott. Dark horror. Yeah. We play together reasonably often, or we've played in each other's games often enough to know each other's style. And... I don't want to be kind of cod psychologist here, but as we sit down to play a game, it's a bit like if you're a teacher, you stand in front of a class, hmm. you take on a role yourself. You're not yourself when somebody's on stage talking to an audience; they're not like they are off stage. You're not like you are when you're running a game. You're you're suddenly Scott, the Call of Cthulhu GM. You know, you're Matt. The cult GM, whatever. You, you sort of sit into that headspace and you become more extrovert, you become more engaging, you suddenly sort of you know focus on everybody around the table if you're a good GM. And taking you, Scott, when you sit down to run Call of Cthulhu, you're in the Call of Cthulhu headspace, and there is quite a bit of humor in there. And that's how you run Call of Cthulhu. I've seen it very differently. When you run Dogs in the Vineyard, that's a very different experience because you sit down there and you take that much more seriously. And that's not a funny game. But there was one or two things that happened that afterwards we laughed about for ages. And there were one or two things that happened in the game that were funny, but it was just a much more serious tone. Yeah. and Whether that's because of the setting and the game, but I think largely it's the approach you took. But you'd read the game you'd got that headspace for the game and when you sat down you presented it like that and we yes. played to that we conformed to your setting of the game
0: yeah because I had to my head that this was a game about hard moral choices and that by laughing off the consequences of what you were doing then you'd end up undermining the very premise of the game so yes I, I did play that as deathly serious
1: as I could And we had feedback in our social media segment recently following our episode about System Matters. And one of our listeners commented that she would find the games of Lamentations of the Flame Princess more frightening than the games of Call of Cthulhu that she'd played. And I wonder if this, to some degree explains it because perhaps the, the gm she's played with they have that approach to call cthulhu when they sit mm. down they're in that headspace that it's horror but it's funny as well and that's the mode we play in but perhaps when they play lamentations they play it more seriously
2: well, i'd say it is a game of very gritty realism if you go by the rule book um, especially how it presents combat certainly some of the illustrations in there it is a very deadly very
1: brutal very grim game but i could say to you matt are you talking about call of cthulhu or are you talking about lamentations of the flame princess Mm -hmm. yeah i suppose the comment does apply to both but it's the way we've taken it it's like when you go into a room if you meet there every week you tend to sit in the same chair every week and i think it's just something as simple as that when you play the same game you tend to sit down with the same mental approach to it. Mm it leads to a similar kind of tone
0: I think there's also something very specific with Call of Cthulhu, because Call of Cthulhu has been around for at this stage what thirty-seven years. It's had a lot of material published for it. A lot of people have played it at various stages in their lives, um, particularly people you know coming to it when they were teenagers. And as a result, it's perhaps acquired a lot of cliches and tropes, and people who you know have approached it in you know, very you kind know, of silly ways to try to undermine the seriousness of it. I mean you're looking at things like the Theron Mark society stuff that is published in the uh, the investigator handbook. I mean that is all about defanging call of cthulhu by playing it in a more comedic manner. And you you find stuff about the classic old man henderson stories on various social media, which is all about someone trying to create the optimal call of cthulhu character that will win every scenario. People sometimes, I think, miss the joke in that one, that it is meant to sort of satirise a particular style of play. I think there are a lot of these things that are woven into Call of Cthulhu and a lot of groups that have perhaps learnt how to play Call of Cthulhu in these ways and see it as a comedic game.
1: And it's a little encouraged by the fact that in some of the older scenarios and campaigns for the GM, there are various what one could only really call comedic skills for some of the NPCs. which don't really manifest necessarily in the game, but they kind of inform the keeper that there's humour in here. Thank you.
0: Thank you. thank you, thank you, Well, friends, it is that time once again, that time when we thank each and every person who has given us money via Patreon. The money that you give us, it does wonderful things. It allows us to pay for our hosting costs. It allows us to pay uh, for the bandwidth of getting the show out to you. It allows us to buy new equipment. It allows us to invest a lot more time now into trying to do things like research and make this as polished a podcast as we, well, as we can
1: well, with let's that, not over-send yeah. <laughs> I think you've dug a deep enough hole there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yes, we would like to take this opportunity to thank all of you and to thank a few new people. So, backing us this month at the $1 level, we start with Robert McLean. Indeed. Thank you very much, Robert. Thank you very much, Robert. And next, also, our thanks
2: go out to Sonny J. Groom. So, thank you very much, Sonny. Thank you very much, Sonny. Thank you, Sonny. And thank you very much to Charles Odom.
1: Yes, thank you very much, Charles. Indeed, thank you, Charles. (laughs) And raising up to the $3 level, I'd like to propose a toast and a thanks to Richard August. Cheers, Richard. Indeed, cheers, Richard.
2: Thank you and cheers, Richard. And next our thanks and cheers go out to Aaron McKinley-Cordial. So thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you and cheers, Aaron. Thank you,
0: Aaron. And we say cheers and thank you to Andrew
1: Cousins. Thank you, Andrew. Cheers, Andrew. Cheers. And finally, in the $3 category, we have, upping from $1 to $3, cheers to Henrik Arboren. Cheers, Henrik. Cheers and thank you, Henrik. And we
0: hope you get as much meaning in your life from listening to the episodes again as you did the first time
1: round. See Google Plus comment for context. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for another week. (laughs) Yeah <laughs> Oh well, wait, what's this at the bottom of the page, Matt?
2: So
0: yes, that means we have two new people to sing to at the five dollar level.
2: Our first victim today is Wota Vermayan. I hope I pronounced your name right there. Thank you very much, Wota, and, and brace yourself.
1: Thank you, Woter. <laughs> Walter
2: <Vermehen.
0: laughs>
1: Thank
2: you. <laughs> oh, well <Walter. laughs> done. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you. To Josh Reich. Uh, well, assume it's Reich. I've heard so many variations of how this name can be pronounced. If it's not that, then thank you to Josh Reich or Josh Reich. Um, well, thank you anyway, Josh.
1: Yes, thank you very much, Josh.
2: Indeed, thanks, Josh. <laughs> thank you, Josh Reich. <laughs> Josh Reich.
0: And And
1: Meanwhile, on social media... And we are pleased to tell you that we have a new iTunes review from Miko Araxinen. The review is entitled, A Note Stuck Under A Stone.
2: I pressed play, and for a few fleeting seconds there was but silence. I thought the device broken, but soon a strange melancholy music filled my ears, and with it came the sudden realisation I was once again in the company of the good friends of Jackson Elias. Created by Messrs. Dorhood, Fricker, and Sanderson, the podcast covers a variety of topics from readings of different works of fiction to creating and playing role-playing games, that most sanity-blasting of pastimes. The podcast derives great strength from their extensive experience in this field, each having their own unique take on the subject. Listening to their podcast has opened my eyes to new, unimaginable insights on our shared obsession. In a good way.
0: Oh, Thank you, Miko. That was, <laughs> that was absolutely delightful. And if anyone else is moved to leave us a review on iTunes, uh, we would be absolutely thrilled. As well as giving us great boosts for our ego apparently help
1: make the podcast more visible and following on from that we have some feedback about our episode on the film the wicker man dirk the dice on g plus has this to say a great discussion about a film that i love very much
0: in 2018 i'm watching the films that appeared in the movie Drome season of cult films that were introduced by alex cox on bbc2 starting in 1988 the first film of the first season was the first airing of the 92-minute print version that is the only one that features an animated son at the end. I agree with Scott and Mike. Every viewing reveals something new, and there's something gameable about that notion. Watching and rewatching, revealing new secrets, new information to the investigators. Multiple versions. I'm always disturbed
1: by the naked woman sobbing on the gravestone. What's her story? I like the fact that he's going back and watching those films yeah. that were on movie drum. I remember that in the late eighties. You tune in, I think it was on a Sunday night. I can't remember And it would be introduced by Alex Cox for a few minutes just talking about the film and you know what we were about to see. And there were, you know, a myriad of, of great films that were broadcast on that. I myself was thinking, you know, I like music from the seventies and films and so on. Maybe I should not go back in time, but treat each year or each month as a year from then and just focus on everything that was released during that year it'd just be an interesting exercise so i only listen to music that was released at that time actually that's pretty much how i live my life anyway i, I so was about in to the say past. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes no one would notice any difference no. <laughs> i don't know what you mean okay anyway scrub that
0: but yeah, that that naked woman sitting on the gravestone—I agree—that's a haunting image. Uh, there's a lot of potential backstory just packed into that one fleeting moment, and I think yeah, this is something that we can we can definitely steal for our games. And certainly, I love. When I'm GMing games, sometimes just spontaneously coming up with these arresting little images, just little bits of description like that that I can throw in that will jar and perhaps, I hope, grab the player's imaginations. And I, I've certainly had the experience many times where I've sort of improvised something like this and it's taken on a life of its own as someone suddenly asks that question, oh, what's her story? I want to know all about that. And suddenly that's what the game's about.
2: And also over on G Plus a Damn Dom, I just watched The Wicker Man for the first time in preparation for the episode. I'm not sure which was more horrifying, the singing at the end of the film or a $5 pledge song. I think we know. Yep, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree with the <laughs> latter.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we lack the wholesomeness of human sacrifice in our activities. Also related somewhat to our activities on social media, We did ask our lovely listeners to share a link to the inspiration and development episodes that we did uh, a short while ago on social media. And we promised that we would draw names at random and five lucky winners would win a copy of Nameless Horrors, which we can sign or deface in any way that appeals to you. We had, uh, I think, what was it, 45, 46 people share it in the end?
1: Yes, and they're all... In the hat. Well, it is actually in the hat.
0: The, their names are in the hat. I mean, the, the actual. No, no list they're you- in here. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. You, you squeeze them down there. Their nicely.
1: souls. Oh, are, Okay, right. Are in, I, the, in the top oh, hat.
0: It, as long as it's, not, it's not the wet, pulpy bits then. Uh, because last time we did that, it took ages to get it out from under my fingernails.
1: The stains. That yeah.
2: was me thinking you were doing a of homage to Land of the Giants, but apparently not.
1: So, shall I draw the first one and then pass the hat around? Let's do this. So, rustling in the hat. The first name is, and it reads. It's a long one, if the it of paper's It is, ah! Forrester Gary is our first name out of the hat. Oh, congratulations, ah.
0: Forrest. We, we hope you like it.
1: <laughs> and I pass it around to Matt. As an interesting side note, I found that top hat in my grandmother's attic. I'm gonna pass it on very quickly. All right. <laughs> yeah, our next one is
2: Mark Crowich. And Scott's well, there,
1: busy drawing the
2: next one out. There, there, there
0: is a name that has come wriggling out into my hand that, oh yes, is a Twitter handle one. I can tell because it, it's it's as long as the strip of paper. I mean, this is like trying to read a tapeworm. Mm. And the winner this time is Darth
1: Loquacious. Yes, we have five copies of Nameless Horrors coming out. Yeah, and the fourth one is, is, oh, what have we got here? <laughs> who would have thought it? Great Cthulhu and Great Cthulhu 420.
0: Uh, okay. Apparently, yeah, dead, dead Cthulhu isn't just dreaming down really, or at least if he is, he's having chemically enhanced dreams. He's just rolling dice. <laughs> uh, no, no. If, if he's Great Cthulhu 420, he's rolling more than dice. Oh, okay.
2: Last I'm copy. Anyone who knows what that means, apparently.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's, it's the crime code in American jurisdictions for possession of cannabis. So a lot of people put 420 after their handles and so on to indicate
2: they smoke dope. Ah, okay. Go for it, Matt. Okay. Our fifth and final copy goes to... Not only do you get a song this episode, you get a copy of Nameless Horrors. Sonny Groom. Ah, oh,
1: okay. Nice oh. one. Congratulations to all of you. So, if your name was drawn out of the hat, rest assured we'll be in contact very soon to get a postal address, and we'll be posting out a copy of the Chaosium book Nameless Horrors, which the three of us authored, and that should be arriving on your doorstep soon. Well, let's quickly wrap up with some final thoughts about the role of
2: comedy in games. Well, Matt, is there a role for comedy in games? Players can bring it if they want. If they don't, oh well, there you go.
1: (laughs) Scott thought it was funny, so I must have won. (laughs) Scott thinks everything's funny. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about was the the real root of comedy in games, which, of course, as in life, is quoting Monty Python, right? Yeah. Actually, I mean, this is something that
0: I had in mind to talk about, which is, that, that one person in every group who thinks they're funny but isn't.
1: What if there isn't a person like that at the table, Scott? Well, You the, know what the, that the means? The, yeah. Inconceivable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, this person is usually identifiable by the fact that They substitute having no sense of humour for an encyclopaedic knowledge of quotes from Monty Python, Terry Pratchett, The Princess Bride, whatever it is,
2: and coming up with them the whole time. At least there's a game to suit The Princess Bride quotes now.
1: Yes. Yes, Well, there's a good case in point that we, you know, it's, it's only just come out, but I wonder how that runs. Well, you've played it, Matt, right? Yeah, I loved it. Well, there's a comedy game that
2: you loved. Well, it, wasn't, it wasn't set up deliberately for comedy games.
1: How? It's a comedy film. Yeah, yeah, but it was a vaguely serious fantasy. That was okay. how we played it. All right. So you played a, a game based on a comedy film and you played it seriously. Yeah, we did have a, common, a vaguely comedy <laughs> moment with a boar. Did, that... you, did you titter delightfully at uh, some points?
2: I did yell very loudly to try and get a boar's attention and he ended up skewering a bad guy with his horns. Well, there you go. Well,
0: if that's not comedy, I don't know what is.
2: <laughs> it went for the guy on the receiving end of the horns. Yeah. Had he just cast summon the horny bull? <laughs> I, you, you could say that, but I couldn't possibly comment.
0: I, and and did you try to have sex with the bull?
2: Hell no! no not, not in the middle of
1: combat, anyway. You're
0: not the no. bat I know.
1: <laughs> well, that's about all the, the uproarious comedy we have time for tonight. So it's a... A tittering goodbye from me. <laughs> it's it's a a cheerful
0: cheerio from me,
2: and it's a giggity <laughs> goodbye from me. Hello,
0: Tomes
1: I don't know if that top hat's cursed, but I am getting cramp in my foot now. I think it's. Ah, it's a curse. Yes. <laughs>